Um, We continue with our series called Behold Our God, and we've been talking about the names of God first, and now we're moving to the names of God still. My daughter reminded me of that this week because we're talking about the names of Jesus, and she's like, that's still the names of God, Dad. Uh, Yes, it is. uh, We're still on the names of God, but um, today we want to look at some of the Old Testament names of God and the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus Christ. And when we think of Old Testament prophecy, we think of need and and that we need things. We need a Savior, right? But we don't always recognize our need. We, As human beings, we don't always like our needs to be filled. We don't like to, to be forced to do certain things. But we need certain things. We need to eat our veggies, right? I do eat my veggies, for those of you that wonder. We need to eat our veggies. Now, do we always like it? No. Some of them are like, ugh. But we need to. We need correction. Not too many head nods there. <laughs> we need accountability. We need instruction. We, we need to be taught as children not to walk out in the middle of the street, right? And, and those are, none of those things are things that we like because it infringes on my personal rights and, and my ability to do my own thing. But we need these things. I can remember um, when Mark was young. I'll just say his name. You guys figure it out every week anyway. When Mark was really little, we had used sign language to uh, to communicate before he could talk. And then he just kept doing it as he got a little bit older. And this symbol, you guys know what that is? All done, right? And so we used that at the table that he could say, I'm all done. And I can remember one time he, he had um, he had been a little naughty and done some things he shouldn't have done. So I'm disciplining him and correcting him. And and in the process of discipline, we talk and, and talk through some principles. And then the discipline comes. And about halfway through the talk, he looks at me and goes, I'm done, Dad. Got this. You can go. I don't even want the discipline that happens at the end. I've learned my lesson. Because he thought he was all done. He thought, I don't need anything else. I, this is good. And I think about that and I think we're, we're sort of the same way. We don't like correction and, and we, we rush to all done and say, even before we've learned the lesson so many times, our culture is in a culture that we don't even need Christ because we have our own ways of saving ourselves. We have our own ways of, uh, ways of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and being our own man. Because to need help, to need something would be a sign of weakness and nothing is further from the truth. When we come to the names of of Christ in the Old Testament, the prophetic names of Christ, they all point to a need for Christ, a need for a Messiah, an expectation that a a Messiah is coming. And and so we we come to the names this morning, and and I want to start by saying we need Christ. And that's the obvious statement of the day, but I want to unpack that today and do some work with that today and say, okay, what does that look like? What did the names that Jesus revealed, that God revealed about His Son, what do they teach us? And a couple things in setup. We have to understand some of the culture, some of the history. One of the, the setups that we have is in the Old Testament, after King David, there was an expectation that a king would eventually come, a future kingdom would come in the line of David. And, and there would be a finally a fulfillment of setting up Israel and the kingdom of Israel in, in all of its glory. And so there was this promise that to David that a kingdom would be set up in his line. 
In First Samuel or Second Samuel 7, verses 15 to 16, we read, But my steadfast love will not depart from him, God talking to David, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Sound like a promise? Forever is a long time. And so some, the, the, the people of Israel knew this. This was part of their writings, and they knew this was a promise of God. And so they are looking forward to when this throne would be established forever. Now, some of that passage was partially fulfilled in Solomon, if you study it through. But like prophecy, there's a partial fulfillment often and then a future fulfillment because Solomon didn't fulfill a kingdom forever. That was the coming Messiah. In Psalm 132.11, we see the same expectation The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. It's pretty pretty awesome, right? Yahweh swore an oath to David. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And so there was this expectation that a Savior was coming. He would be in the line of David and he would bring a kingdom that would be an everlasting kingdom. If you're a Jew at the time, this is exciting stuff. This is something to look forward to. And so they, they clung to this. That's part of the messianic expectations we talk about at Christmas time because they were looking for their Messiah. So today we're going to come to Jeremiah 23. And actually all of the names are going to come out of Jeremiah 23. Two of them directly, one of them indirectly. And, and to understand the background of Jeremiah... He's giving prophecy to to Judah at this point, to the southern kingdom, because the the southern kingdom of Judah is heading toward the fall. They're they're heading toward captivity. They haven't been taken into captivity yet. The northern kingdom of Israel had been taken into captivity about 100 years before by the Assyrians. You would think that if you saw 10 of your 12 tribes taken into captivity, taken away because of their disobedience to God, you would think that would click, right? Oh, let's not go down that path. hundred years, a lot can happen, and Judah's going down the same path. In fact, as we, we look at the history of, of Judah, we can see over and over and over kings where their description is they did not walk with God. There, was some, there were some exceptions. We saw kings where um, they weren't walking with God, and then Josiah came on the scene, this young king who found the law, and brought Israel back, but then he, um, he died, and the next king again did not walk with God. And so the history is Judah is not walking with God. It's a dark time. Nebuchadnezzar is at the door. And if you, if you know your history, you know Babylon was a rising power. He's already come in and, and, and had dealings with Israel. He's trying to control some things, and he's about to take them captive. King Zedekiah at the time. He says, well, let's figure out what's going to happen with King Neb. And, and are we going to be okay? And so he sends some priests to Jeremiah and asks how this is going to turn out earlier in Jeremiah. And, and Jeremiah, as a prophet of God, prophesies, this isn't going to be good. You are going to be taken into captivity. You're going to be taken out of Jerusalem. In fact, the message that Jeremiah gave was that God himself will war against Judah because of their disobedience they will fall and that's the context that we we just about come to this prophecy 
But the next thing the king does, instead of repenting, and we know from the chapter right before this that the king could have repented. That was God's goal, is to have him repent and be restored. Instead of repenting, he said, I don't like what Jeremiah said. Send him to jail. And they throw him in, in prison and ignore the message from God. And so we see the line of David threatened because the southern kingdom represented the line of David at this time. And Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, and then Konia, they were cut off for evil. And so the line of David would be cut off as Zedekiah would be also taken into captivity. Hope is gone. If you're someone living in that, that era, this is, these are not good times. You know, we we can look at our lives and there's seasons of life where hope is gone, isn't there? Where we struggle, where we're trying to figure out how to move forward. That's where Israel is at, but just on steroids. Just in, in a huge way, hope was gone. And so Jeremiah writes, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. The first four verses aren't much better of the chapter. We're not going to cover those this morning. But basically he's saying your leaders have failed you. Your shepherds have failed to to shepherd you. They will be taken away. But we get to verses 5 and 6 and we see God bring hope onto a dark scene of despair. So let's read Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming. And that's a phrase that's often used in Jeremiah for prophecy, saying this is what you can expect in the future. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. What an incredible section of hope. The days are coming where I will raise up. And Yahweh is saying, I'm the one that's going to do this. In spite of your failure, you've blown it. Your kings have blown it. As a nation, you have walked away from me. You're you're deep in idolatry. But there's hope because I am Yahweh and I am faithful. I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And you see that first, first word, branch, That's a word that is a name of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that in in this verse and several other verses. Here it might look like a description, but we see from Scripture that that's used as a name. And and it's interesting because the word for branch there is this idea of a shoot coming out of a dead tree. And so if you picture a tree that has died and fallen over, and if you've done any hiking, you've come across things like this, and all of a sudden there's just one shoot of new life out of that, that stump or out of that tree, right? That's what this word is. We have this, this tree at home that, that I got Susie for Christmas, a pomegranate tree. Christmas? I think it was Christmas. And it sat in our backyard because we were trying to clear a space. There was a dirt mound that we had to dig out to where we wanted to plant it. And it sat for a couple of months before we were able to plant it. It's a bare root um, tree. We finally plant this, clear the space, plant it. I'm watering it every day and, and looking at it every day. And nothing. Just nothing. You would hope of that it would grow. Otherwise, it was just a, a really bad Christmas gift. Um, and, and I look at the top, and you know how you sort of see if it's green? And it goes, snap. Oh, that's not green at all. That's just completely dry. And so we kept watering it. We left it in. And now there's about 10 different shoots coming out of the base. 
top completely dead. It's not growing. It's not doing anything. But the roots and and the stump, these shoots are coming out. That's the word that's used for branch here. And it's an illustration. God is saying, your kingdom is dead. Your kings are dead in their sins. They They have failed. They have not followed me. But a new shoot of life, a new branch will rise up. The line of David was about to be cut off, just about, but not completely. And out of that failure, God would provide his own son to be the righteous king and fulfill that promise to David. Branch is often, also often used to refer to the messianic king in the line of David. In Isaiah 11.1, 1, we see the, the same idea. There shall come forth a shoot or a branch from the stump of Jesse. And we know Jesse was David's father. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. So we see in Isaiah the same prophecy that out of the line of David will be a branch, the Messiah, the King. Interesting, they, they, archaeology is always um, finding different things. They found some other writings of the time, and this word was also used in other civilizations to represent the rightful heir to a throne. Jesus is king, is what this prophecy is saying. So when we say branch, we know that that means he's from the line. He's a branch of the line of David, and he is the rightful king to the everlasting kingdom. But read on in that passage. See how he's described. And to the children of Israel, to to Judah, who are used to kings that were evil, that were unfair, that only served their own purposes, this description would have been heavenly. And he shall reign as king, in verse 5, and deal wisely. Well, that'd be new. And shall execute justice. That'd be new too. And righteousness in the land. We'll talk about righteousness a little bit later, but to do right, to stay straight on path. In his days of the king, which is Jesus Christ, in his days Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely to, to, a, to a nation that's about to be taken into captivity and, and half already is. That is huge. They'll be reunited under the kingdom of God. And so this is a wise, a just, and a righteous king that provides salvation and security. The message of branch is hope and despair. That a sovereign Lord has not lost his way and not somehow had his plan thwarted because a king didn't follow God. Interestingly enough, the, the whole line of David and that expectation there, this is why Matthew starts with a genealogy. You know, the part we always skip. And we're like, cool, I can, I can, I can read a whole bunch in like two minutes because I'm just skimming. That had a purpose. It directly tied Jesus back to the line of David. For, for the Jew, they would have said, he's the branch. He's the son of David. He's the king. He's the Messiah. That's why Matthew did that. The beauty of Scripture. So the branch is the rightful king. You have the, the first little bullet point there. The next bullet point is the branch is a servant. And, and we see this interesting thing of a servant king that we see over and over with Jesus Christ in, in Zechariah 3.8, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, and your friends who sit before you, for they are men 
who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant. And then he uses the branch as a title, as a name. I will bring my servant, the branch. And Yahweh sent Jesus Christ as his servant, as the king, to rescue all nations from the kingdom of Satan and from sin. So the first name we see in this passage is the branch. An implication from that, an application, something to remember. The perfect, just, and righteous king is even sovereign over our failures and can handle our sin. Let me repeat that. The perfect, just, and righteous king is even sovereign over our failures and can handle our sin. Out of the dead stump, a branch grows. And that's Jesus Christ. His life, His righteousness. What the people of Judah felt as hopelessness, as failure, as the darkest of days. God says, I've got this. A king is coming to reverse all of this. Isn't that comforting? Because that's the same God that in our darkest of days and in our, in our dark nights of the soul says, I've got this. When we have found ourselves and we've woken up and said, I am struggling with sin. I am struggling to defeat this. God, help me. He can and He will. Because He's the branch. Dark, dark days. Jewish tradition even has that one of the kings that that was right before this had, had Isaiah sawn in half. That's the depth of the despair. The depth of the retreat from God. But the branch is going to change that. That's why this this prophecy is such a beautiful prophecy. Second name of God today, which which ties in. This one isn't directly said in these verses. It is in the New Testament. The son of David. And it's the same concept, so I wanted to group them together. The idea that that Jesus would be a descendant of, of King David and a rightful heir to the throne. He was the fulfillment of all of the prophecies concerning the kingdom of David. You see in verse 5 there, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And, And like we said, the people knew that this would be a descendant of David, so a son of David. And so jump to the New Testament. Let me just read some of the verses. We'll just, we'll just skim through these because this gives us a little bit more of an idea of the branch. In the New Testament, the phrase son of David was a title that meant the king, the Messiah, the rightful heir is finally here to set up his kingdom. And so Matthew 1.1, the very first verse of the New Testament, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we looked at those names last week, the son of David. That is a claim to Messiahship. That is a claim to kingship right from the start. In fact, we know Matthew spends the whole book proving that Jesus is king, that he is the Messiah. That's why he starts with this. Matthew 9, 27, and, and you see this all throughout the Gospels. And my hope is that as we study the names of God, it just brings richness as we study God's word. And as, people passed, and as Jesus passed on from there in Matthew 9, 27, two blind men followed him saying, and crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. And so they're trying to be healed. They're, they're, they, they want their blindness taken away. And they use the title of his authority and power and kingship. 
In Matthew 12, just a little bit later, a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, this is an amazing miracle. He can see, he can speak. And how do the people respond? And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? They're they're not just picking some name out of the air. They're saying, can this be the branch? Can this be the king that's going to turn things around? Can this be the, the salvation that we are hoping for? The triumphal entry in Matthew 21, jumping ahead to to verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna. We sang that this morning, right? Hosanna. Hosanna. Do, Do you catch the rest of it? To the son of David. They are coronating the king. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and and the children crying out in the temple, so Jesus is doing wonderful things and, and they should be happy. The children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. See, the leaders, the Pharisees didn't want to accept Christ. They wanted their own power. They, he was a threat to the system. And the phrase, Hosanna to the son of David, struck a chord because they said, this is not our king. This is not our Messiah. And so when you see son of David, it's part of the same prophecy, part of the same hope that a savior is coming, a king is coming. Root of David is sometimes used as a, a name and, and speaking of a shoot of David. Root, um, root of Jesse is used in Isaiah 11.10. He was the long-awaited king. In Luke 1, the beginning of Luke's gospel, verses 32 to 33, he will be great and will be called son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. This theme is everywhere. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Luke is saying, the prophecies, they're happening. God is doing what he said. And so whenever you see son of David referring to Christ, God is doing what he said. Implication, application of that. How do we put that into practice? What do we need to be remembering? God keeps his promises. Just a simple one for this. God keeps his promises. See, the son of David meant that promises made hundreds of years before God hadn't forgotten. God is always faithful. Never doubt him. It's why I love hearing the stories of some of you that have been believers longer than I have. Because it's a reminder of God's faithfulness. When someone can say, I've been a believer for 60 years and God has never let me down, that means something. And, and for, for those of us that have been believers a long time, we need to be passing on those stories. We need to be sharing our testimonies. We need to be saying, God hasn't let me down and he will never let you down. One of the things I loved about yesterday with the men, we had men of all ages together. We had men that were in high school, men that were, were in their 60s, 70s. Just sharing stories, sharing what God had done, that God is faithful. He's the son of David. Of course he's faithful. We come to the last name of the morning. And all of that, I wanted to sort of set the stage for for what is just an, an incredible concept to me. A concept that humbles me 
and, and makes me so in love with my Savior at the same time. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. Yahweh Sidkenu. And, and it's one of the Yahweh names that we were studying in the Old Testament. And we didn't study this one with the names of God because this one is very specifically applied to Jesus Christ. But if you look at the end, you still hopefully have Jeremiah 23 open, the end of verse 6. I'll read the whole verse. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Yahweh is our righteousness. And said, this is the name Jesus will be called by. Because Jesus was God's gift of righteousness to us. He would be the one that would secure our righteousness. See, see, righteousness is one of those words that we all know, and we all know what it means, but it's hard to define. You, you know, you, there's words like that, right? And how do you put that into words? And, and the, the Hebrew word here literally meant to walk straight or to be straight. And so the idea was to stay on course with what is right. You see how it, it fits in with righteousness? And so we see verses that say, don't veer to the right or to the left. That was directly tied with righteousness because if righteousness is to stay straight, to go to the right or the left, not straight, right? It's unrighteousness. You know, I, I think Matt and Heather hiked Baldy yesterday, right? And you guys took Ski Hut down. You didn't take Devil's Backbone down. But if you had taken Devil's Backbone down, I don't know if you've ever done it before, you get to this point, right, where there's a cliff here and a cliff here. You're highly motivated to walk straight. You die if you don't walk straight. Well, maybe not die. Well, you might. It's pretty far down, isn't it? <laughs> um, and so at, at that point, that's the concept of walking straight. I remember a number of years ago, a number of men here climbed Whitney, and it was the year of the blizzard. Remember that year? And 20-mile-an-hour and winds and snow. And, and at the top, at the, um, the pinnacles, they're not called pinnacles. Needles, thank you, the, the needles. There's, there's points where you're crawl, you're, you're, the path goes right between the needles and it's a drop-off on both sides. And we, I think I was with Jacob that year, is that, we were crawling across that. We were so committed to going straight <laughs> because, again, cliff, 2,000 feet on one side, that we were crawling across it to make sure we were able to go straight in the wind. That's the idea of righteousness. It's to stay straight. But it has a moral connotation of staying pure, of being a man or woman of integrity, of doing the right thing. Part of the definition also is means to have a right standing before God. Think about what it takes to have a right standing before a perfect, holy, righteous God. None of us in here can do this on our own. But righteousness means to have a right standing with God, a right relationship with God. To live completely according to the character of God. That would be my working definition of righteousness. To live completely according to the character of God. High goal? It's okay. The Bible says be perfect as he is perfect. That's our goal. That's the standard. And so when we see the, the phrase, the Lord is our righteousness, there's two aspects to that that we need to understand. And, and I, I put a phrase in your notes that gives both of those. Jesus is both our measure of righteousness and the one who gives us righteousness. Jesus is both our measure of righteousness and the one who gives us righteousness. The first, our measure, he is our standard. He is our yardstick. It's his character that determines what is right or wrong. 
You know, and, and that's, that's a message today. That's a message we need to hear in an age. And, and we've all been following the news and, and we hear things. And I know Pastor Andrew interacted with some people about a video this week on, on abortion. And the whole concept is, how can I tell someone what's right or wrong? It should be up to her what she does with her body. I'm not going to get into all the arguments. I, I want to. But um, <laughs> how can I tell someone who to love romantically? How can I tell someone what they should or shouldn't do? And, and, and our world is, is crazy because we have no yardstick. We have no ruler. We have no moral compass right now. One author I was reading was talking about he was on a plane and engaged with somebody on the plane trying to talk about moral absolutes. And, and how do we know that there's moral absolutes? And, and um, he asked the guy, well, how do you know what's right or wrong? And there, there's really only three choices for how do you decide what is right or wrong. And the first one the guy said was, well, what about if everybody got to choose for themselves? And they started talking about that. And where does that lead? It, it leads to chaos. If I decide it's right for me to shoot Phil, <laughs> Janine's saying, I don't think that's right. <laughs> Phil might be saying that too. But it's right for me. And, and, and so on the plane, this gentleman was like, okay, you're right. That, there's a whole lot of cases where ca- that can't matter. And so then they talked and said, well, what about a second option? What if it's by consensus? We're going to take a vote of what's right or wrong. And, and they were talking about it. And this was really intriguing to the, the non-believer sitting next to him. He's like, well, that could work. We do that in government, sort of. And, and, um, and, and so, so let's take a vote. And the, the guy got up to go to the bathroom. And he came back. And the guy sitting next to him and says, while you were gone, the pilot came over the, the radio and said, we're about 200 pounds overweight. But we took a vote, and we decided to throw you off the plane. <laughs> and he's like, that's not right. <laughs> but we voted. It was consensus. How can it be wrong? And the light started to turn on. And the guy said, there, it's not right. And he said, well, how do you know it's not right? Great question to ask. You come to a point because everyone has something that they intuitively know is not right because of what, how God has created us. And you, you have to ask why. Why is that not right? And in that setting, they had already dispelled the first two. And, and um, the, the, uh, the guy I was reading said, can I tell you what I believe? Can I tell you that we do have to have a standard? There must be some moral standard. Almost all of us would agree that it's not right to throw someone off a plane. Hopefully all of us. There's moral absolutes. And he went on to explain that Jesus and the character of God is that moral absolute. There must be uh, an absolute. And that absolute cannot change. Otherwise, we're we're chasing a, a moving target. And the only absolute that does not change is the character of an infinite God. There is no other possible solution to that dilemma. And they had a great conversation. Don't know if the guy accepted Christ, but he was thinking. When we think righteousness and that the Lord is our righteousness, He is our standard. His Word is, our, is the standard of, of His character. This is the revelation of who He is. And so to live completely according to the character of God means we have to know Him and follow Him. Interestingly enough, Jeremiah was writing this prophecy during the reign of King Zedekiah, which means righteousness of the Lord. 
this evil man, his name meant righteousness of the Lord. And there's a play on words here. We don't always see the, the humor in some of these things. But for Jeremiah then to say, the future king, his name will be Yahweh is our righteousness, was a complete indictment on King Zedekiah, who was doing evil in the sight of the Lord, far from righteous. The true king, Jesus Christ, would be our righteousness. So the first half of that was Jesus is is our measure of righteousness. His character determines what is right or wrong. The second half of that is the branch of righteousness becomes our righteousness by giving us his righteousness. Yes, I used the word righteousness three times in there. But, But read that again and unpack that. I think I put this phrase in your notes. The branch of righteousness, which is used in verse 5, becomes our righteousness in verse 6 by giving us his righteousness and that will be revealed in the New Testament at the cross. Let's, let's unpack this. And, and we've got to come to the gospel this morning. This is about the gospel and the essentials of the gospel. And if you are here this morning and you've never heard the gospel and, and you're like, I don't, this isn't making a lot of sense, listen carefully because we're just going to explain what Jesus did on the cross for us. If you're a believer, use this as an opportunity to appreciate that Jesus is our righteousness. This gift that is beyond anything we can repay, beyond anything we deserve. And and so follow the trail here. Follow the argument. The first is we have to understand God is righteous. We've already said that. A couple verses that that say that, and there's many that do. Psalm 85, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. And so the psalmist says, righteousness is the very foundation of your rule, of your throne. Psalm 129.4, it just says it. Yahweh is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Because a righteous God must deal with unrighteousness. And so God is completely righteous. He is completely pure. So, so first premise. Second statement, second fact, we are not righteous. Sort of obvious statement of the day, right? Anyone here think they're perfect? If so, we could talk afterwards and we'll have a great discussion. Um, we are not righteous. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says, We have all become like one who is unclean. The word all means all. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And that was used of a rag that was used for feminine hygiene. We, we are all unclean. We all fade like a leaf. Of, and our iniquities like the wind takes us away. No one in here can say they're righteous. I can't, you can't. Now we do, in our thoughts we do, but, but I don't do such and such like so and so. I haven't murdered anyone this week or month. I haven't stolen anything. I, I haven't done the really bad things. See, the thing with righteousness is any veering off the path is unrighteousness. 20 feet off the path kills you. But on a cliff, one foot off the path kills you. It doesn't matter. It's all unrighteousness. It all is deserving of punishment. It all must be punished by a righteous God. We all fall short of the standard. We're familiar with Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have. We fall short of His plan, of His character, because that's the definition of righteousness. Romans 3.10-12 As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. You're not the exception. 
I'm not the exception. We are not righteous. No one understands, it it goes on to say in verse 11, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Do you see the the turning aside in, in regards to righteousness? They've all veered off the straight path. Every one of us this morning, I would bet, have fallen short of the character of God at some point. Some of you while driving here, we fall short of the character of God every day. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. He's pounding it. You are not righteous. The standard is God who is righteous. The standard isn't each other. Comparisons are a favorite tool of the devil in so many different ways. But don't fool yourself into thinking you're righteous because you've found someone more unrighteous than you are. We all deserve death because of our unrighteousness. We have fallen short. We deserve to be punished for that. That's why Romans 6.23 says, for the wages, the just results of sin are death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that but changes everything. It turns this whole situation on its, on its side Because we have our two facts. God is righteous. We are not. And so the question that must come out of that is how can a sinful man stand before the righteous God? How can we stand before a righteous, just God and not be punished and not have that sin dealt with? I have some illustrations this morning. If you can bear with me on my illustrations. This bottle represents us and really how we think we are oftentimes. We think we are are just wonderful people, maybe sinless. No, no, there's times that we're very aware uh, of our sin. And sometimes I think that's why it's easier for someone that is is deep in sin in their their life and just struggling with either addiction or or just painful sin. Sometimes it's easier for them to come to Christ because they know that this isn't them. But for those that have grown up in the church, sometimes it's easy to, to know how to say all the right things and do all the right things, and we think this is us. But then there's sin. And, and th- this water represents sin, and the reality is, try not to spill this all over the carpet, Don. The ra- reality is we have sin. Sorry. <laughs> this isn't the bad one. We have sin in our life. And the amazing thing is, is when I poured that sin in, it didn't just stay in one spot. How much of of life did it infiltrate? Every part of life. And at the fall, every part of life was tainted and stained by sin. I still have some stains on my hands from preparing this because I was using iodine in this. Iodine stains. Hard to get off. That's what sin does in our lives. And that's what we're left with. I I wish they were a little darker, but we are sinful creatures. So how do we stand before a righteous God? You might be saying, Ron, I didn't come here today to just be bummed out. And Okay, great. It's the news that follows that is everything. It's it's the, the prophecy by Jeremiah that the Lord, Yahweh, is our righteousness. See, we can't on our own deal with this. We can't deal with the sin on our own. We need a new heart. 
We need that sin forgiven. We need that stained, washed away. But as we add good deeds, it just infiltrates more. I could add all kinds of water and you still wouldn't want to drink this. It's still sinful. It's still disgusting. And so nothing I do on my own can declare me clean to where I can be in eternity with Christ. But Yahweh Sedek knew. Yahweh is our righteousness came and changed everything. We can be righteous before God, but not with my own righteousness because I don't have any, but through the payment of Jesus Christ on the cross, He makes those that believe in Him righteous. It's His work that makes us righteous. Let me read some verses. Philippians 3.9 And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. Do I have righteousness on my own? No. All stray. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. I have another another bottle here that says Jesus Christ, our righteousness. It doesn't mean I'm righteous, but that Jesus is our righteousness. And He is clean and He is pure. And through faith in Him, through believing on Him, He can make me righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, a verse that's in your notes. For our, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, because He's righteous, so that we in Him might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that a great phrase? When we believe in Jesus Christ, we become the righteousness of God. Not by anything we've done. It's not my righteousness. Some have said it's an alien righteousness or an outside-of-myself righteousness. But when I trust Jesus with my life, His righteousness just gets poured on me and put on me in amazing ways. And it wipes away my sin and it cleanses it and that stain is washed clean. And I can stand before a holy God then. Not because He sees me and my unrighteousness, but because He sees Jesus Christ and His righteousness and the blood that was shed on the cross in payment for my sins. Oh man, this is great. Isaiah 61.10 gives the image of a a robe and I almost brought like an overcoat. I I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Isn't that a great image? He's added clothes to me. He's clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So the, the image here is Jesus takes His righteousness and puts it over us like a robe that covers everything. And so now you and I can be righteous because of Jesus Christ. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not just forgiving and ignoring, it's cleansing and so we see that Jesus, when, when He comes into our life and when we allow Him to be Lord of our lives, it changes everything. See, His work, hopefully this will work, His work on the cross completely takes care of the sin in our lives. And we're clean. And I know this is a silly little illustration. But for me, it put into a visual what Jesus is doing in my life. 
The sin is gone. Now, I still struggle with it. I still struggle with the old man. But God sees this because he's looking at me through the glasses of Jesus Christ. You know, we might say, okay, what if Jesus had sinned? And the thing is, Jesus can't sin. He is sinless. It never changes who he is. But his blood on the cross is effective enough to wipe out every one of our sins. Every stain. And make us clean. That's what we're talking about this morning. I'm not righteous. You're not righteous. Jesus is our righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? Makes me want to worship. And we're going to do that in a minute. We're a new creation. I mentioned the only way it can happen is if Jesus gives us a new heart. In Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, Yahweh promises, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, righteous, down the middle, and be careful to obey my rules. I love this name of Christ because he's promising to do something I can't do and make me clean. Corresponding name there is Jesus is the righteous one. In the New Testament, he's often called the righteous one. But I want to get to the implications. First implication, and something to think about. If you're a believer this morning, if you have turned your life over to God and said, I know he died on the cross for my sins, I will follow him with my life, you are the righteousness of God. You have a new identity And you are the righteousness of God. Satan will try to to tell you how dirty you are, how ugly you are, how disgusting you are every time you blow it. No, you are the righteousness of God. That's how God views us because it's through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the lens of Jesus Christ. We need to see ourselves that way and not get mired in depression over, over the things I do wrong and let that stop us, but to see myself as a child of God, the righteousness of God. Second thing to think about is we need to remember who took care of our sin. We didn't do it. And so to take credit for it is really stupid. I didn't cleanse myself. I can't be good enough. Jesus is my righteousness. And so I shouldn't worship self. I shouldn't elevate self. I should elevate him and praise him and worship him. This fights pride. This fights self-centeredness. This fights the ability to think I'm better than someone else. I might say, I'm better than Matt this morning. Hey, well, I, I didn't do anything. Matt didn't do anything to be righteous except believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the work was done by Jesus on the cross. So really I'm saying my Jesus is better than your Jesus? No, that's silly. And so it takes away all of our comparisons and all our feelings of being better than each other. Yes, we're all at different places in sanctification. And God is helping us grow in different ways. But Jesus is the one doing the work. Last thing to think about. 
Just a question. Do our lives reflect the righteousness that we have been given in Christ? This is the question. This is the bottom line today. Does my life reflect the righteousness that Jesus hung on the cross and was tortured for and died for to give me? Now, we would all say not always. We fail, we fall, we need to come and repent before God and ask for forgiveness. But is my desire to walk with God? And and here's the thing. This isn't about a list of do's and don'ts. This is about saying, I am so amazed at what Jesus did for me. I am amazed that I can walk into the throne room of Yahweh God Almighty and be accepted and be welcomed that I, my desire is to walk with God. My desire is to walk righteously. It's my heart. And it's so easy to, to break Christianity down into, oh, there's a ro- list of, of do's and don'ts, a list of rules. But if our heart isn't desiring to walk with God, the question that I would urge you to ask this morning is, am I really a Christian? Because the righteousness of Christ wipes away my stains. He gives me a new heart. And if I don't have any evidence of a new heart, if I'm just sitting here out of duty every week, we need to ask the tough question, am I a Christian? Have I ever given my heart completely to Jesus Christ? And that's sobering this morning. Again, probably not what you came to church to hear. But it's God's Word, and it's what we need to hear. Because my heart is that everyone in this room is sold out for Christ and is a follower of Christ and has a new heart and has His righteousness. Don't be deceived into thinking you're a believer when you might not be. I'm not saying doubt your salvation. I'm not saying question it. I'm saying look at why we are doing what we're doing. Is it out of a a new heart for Christ? Do our lives reflect the righteousness given us In Jesus Christ. Some of you might be saying, no, it doesn't. I've never accepted Christ. I've never heard any of this. Talk with me afterwards. Let's deal with that today. Because Jesus wants to be your righteousness. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for righteousness that we could be called saints and enter the throne room of the King. Praise you and worship you in Jesus' name.